welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. This is episode number 336. And yes, if you're paying attention, this is dropping on a Friday, which we don't normally do. But this is a bonus episode. Directly across the street from XOHQ is Chris Reeve Knives, who you may or may not have heard of, but if you are at all aware or involved in the knife world, you certainly have heard of Chris Reeve. And with them being neighbors, we've gotten to know them over the last handful of years and worked with them to develop a knife, really for our own needs. And then we built some extras to give to friends, use for giveaways, things like that. And so this is a limited edition knife that you can't buy, but we are giving you an opportunity to win one. So if you go to the link in the show description and leave us a message using the SpeakPipe app and just let us know what question, topic, suggestion, or pro tip you may have to share in a future episode, that's how you enter. And we're doing that all throughout the month of April. So just leave us that question before the end of the month here in April of 2022, and you'll automatically be entered to win the knife. Again, check out the link in the show description and you'll see the knife, specs, and more. But in this episode, we're talking with Tim Reeve. It is Chris's son, and he's running the shop in many ways over there at Chris Reeve Knives these days. We talk not just about Chris Reeve knives, but about knives in general. We get into things like blade steel, blade angle, sharpening tips, and much more. The questions that we're covering today came from you guys, the listeners of the show, as well as some of our followers on Instagram. And so we wanted to get Tim on the show to tackle as many of the knife-related questions as we could, and certainly you guys can take something out of this episode. So enjoy this bonus episode. Here we are with Tim Reeve. Awesome. Well, Tim, welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. We got Steve on here, Jake on here, uh, and myself, obviously. So we got a full crowd. Excited to chat with some questions. Uh, we had so many uh, questions that came through via social, um, and then just kind of wanted to do more of a comprehensive anything knife related. And uh, you're certainly got to talk to, but to kick things off, man, tell us a little bit about uh, Chris Reeves Knives and really some of the backstory and history. I'll like for my own context, I was never a s- super knife nerd, but I've always been into knives. And uh, like definitely, I don't know, God, 15, 20 years ago was on Blade forums and stuff a little bit. And like it was always oh. <laughs> a dream of mine to own a Chris Reeves one day. And uh, awesome. Yeah, made that happen here eventually. But yeah, man, give us a little yeah. bit of the story and background for I'm sure a ton of hunters may not even be aware of Chris Reed's knives if they're not knife nerds. Sure. Yeah. No, thanks for having me on. Um, I listen to you guys podcast quite often. Uh, it's a great one. So it's quite a pleasure to be here, but, um, yeah, so my folks started, well, my dad started Chris Reed knives in South Africa, um, officially in 1984. Um, he'd been making custom knives for a little bit before that, a couple of years before that, um, met my mom at the end of 84 and, uh, basically just built the company out of the garage in South Africa. They immigrated to the States in 1989. I was born here in 91. And um, yeah, we've been in Boise ever since. Um, basically all of the parts of the knife are made uh, here in our shop in Idaho, in, in Boise, except for the standard body screws and the pocket clip. Uh, the screws are made down in the LA area. And then 
pocket clips made by a company called Piranha here in Idaho too. Um, so yeah, we just, my folk, my dad started off to, to, to set off to make the highest quality production knives on planet earth, basically. Um, and he, in many ways, I, I guess, achieved that goal. Um, he, so he brought two major contributions to the industry, knife industry. Uh, one is the, the old hollow handled one piece knives. So like the old Rambo survival knife with the butt cap and you could put stuff in there and, you know, became really big in the, in the eighties, you know, the saw, saw backs on the back of them. Um, so those were pretty cool. Cause they were turned from one big, huge bar of a two tool steel uh, and then ground and everything like that afterwards. Um, and then the big thing that he's really known for is he invented the frame lock or what we call the, the Reeve integral lock, which is the, uh, the lock mechanism on, on almost all of our knives. Um, and so, yeah, he, he started playing around with that in 1987 and, um, yeah, it's, it's probably on 60% of folding knives or something like that out there in the world. So I know he's been a huge influence to a, quite a few people in the industry. And, uh, yeah, I mean, we've been, we've been making knives for almost 40 years. Yeah. What's, uh, did you have a passion for it when you were a kid? Like I even think of my son, he's, you know, 10 now and he loves knives. Like that had been pretty cool. I would assume to kind of grow up around that. Yeah. I mean, it, it was way cooler than say having maybe a plumber for a dad or something like that. I mean, <laughs> uh, and no knock to anybody that's got a dad for a plumber. Cause man, that's a, that's, there's a lot to know there, but no, it was cool. I, I obviously fell in love with knives from a young age. Um, through my youth, I always swore I would never be a knife maker and I would never run a machine shop. And, um, well, like here I am. So that didn't work out. Uh, I was, I was told them like, there's easier way to make a living. He was like, yeah, no, go, then go do something better than this. And, and, uh, long story short, I'm here. So it's a lot of fun. I mean, it's the family company. Um, my dad retired in 2000, end of 14 into 15. And then I joined the company, uh, right in, early 2015 kind of joined back into the company. Um, and he, and so, and so my mom actually runs the the whole company runs the show and I basically run the shop these days. Um, and she'll get to a place where she'll retire and, and I'll take over the whole gig. So yeah, growing up was pretty fun. I mean, I was, we we're always known as like the knife family. Um, yeah, we always had knives on us. It's always kind of a cool thing. So a lot of our friends, you know, got some perks, I guess. Yeah. That's cool. Funnily enough, we grew up, I never grew up hunting. Um, my dad wasn't a hunter, but we grew up kind of adjacent to the hunting world. Uh, knew a lot of friends, made a lot of knives for, pe- for, for hunters, sharpened knives for hunters, you know, ate meat from hunters as, for, as gifts. But my, my dad just was never, he was a big animal lover and he just could never really kind of pull himself to do it. Never had anything against it, but he's like, nah, just not for me. So my hunting endeavors are actually rather uh, more recent in my life, believe mm. it or not. Yeah. What is the, from my outside perspective, again, part of this has less to do with getting to know you guys, um, in the last handful of years, more of my history of being aware of the brand, but there's definitely guys out there. There's a lot of collectors of your knives. Um, sure. and again, I probably don't have the best perspective or opinion on this, but I've always found it curious, like these higher dollar, super high quality, high performing knives. And then some guys who just like 
apparently get them, look at them and never do anything with them, which I've always thought was really weird. (laughs) So like, I remember when I first talked with you and like got a knife, I was like, I don't know if this is like not okay, but I'm going to beat the crap out of this thing and use it for everything. And you're like, I hope so, you know? Yeah. But what is it like to kind of, I don't know, like it just is odd to me to like put so much into performance and things on a knife, but then for, at least for some folks, it's like just this object they look at in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, we put a, a toe in each pond, uh, you know, kind of one on the utility side and one on the collector, almost art piece side um, with, with some of the, the, the more fancy stuff that we make. I mean, with Damascus and wood inlays and weird graphics that we do and special materials, I mean, those really are kind of art pieces of their own. Um, so you have collectors of everything. Uh, I mean, there's stamp collectors for God's sake. Like, uh, of course there's going to be knife collectors. So I think, but I think a lot of our heavy hitting collectors that have like over a hundred of our knives, which is wild and, and very humbling. They all have a beater in their pocket. They have like a plain Jane Spencer or something that they keep in their pocket and it's all scratched up and they, you know, they use that for doing their, like their dumb stuff knife. And then, <laughs> then there's knives that they just don't touch, you know, and with 30 years of history, there's a lot of, um, you know, little special editions and weird one-offs and, uh, you know, kind of elusive collector knives. And, and so there's a lot of like thrill, I think, in just trying to find a lot of these things. Uh, some of the guys will just absolutely fall head over heels for a particular model that was made maybe, you know, in like 93 or something like that. And they'll spend, literally a lifetime trying to collect these. And so it really, it's formed this, this uh, interesting community of CRK collectors. And, and we're not the only brand in the knife industry that has this. I mean, it's a similar thing in the gun industry. You have guys that collect like crazy old vintage shotguns and stuff like that. Um, so in some ways it's, it's wild. And like, we don't understand some of it because we come from, when we go to make the knives, like we come from a, a utilitarian functional angle right like we start from that corner and and then and so even with the fancier knives that we make like they're still made to the same standards and quality and and fitment procedures as something that we're gonna make that's more on the utilitarian side so it just uh it just depends on who you are and then you know to to a lot of folks a 450 dollar knife is an expensive knife i mean i i wouldn't go buy a 450 dollar knife i don't (laughs) i'm quite lucky to be able to get them a different way. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, that's, that's quite expensive for some folks. And so they, then they, you know, they, they really look at their Chris Reeve knife as their pride and joy, and they don't want to do a lot of, you know, bait it up too much. And they just really enjoy having that. And it can be a, you know, a plain model. Um, but then there's other folks that have maybe the cash and, and, or don't mind putting investments into that. And they really want to go kind of find the crazy stuff. So we, we sell knives all over the world to all sorts of different people. So it keeps us, uh, our world pretty entertaining. And uh, honestly, at the end of the day, pretty, pretty humbling. I remember when I got the, we, I think we swapped a pack for a knife or something like that. And I think I immediately, like the week later was on a fishing trip in Oregon or we, we float a river for like a week. And I was like, you know, it was like holding the knife in my hand, like in a boat over the edge of the boat, you know, like I really don't want to <laughs> drop this in the water. <laughs> yeah. I, was, I was very, very careful with it. I was like, this seems a four hundred plus dollar knife. Uh, oh, I so love it. It's definitely an interesting, uh, you know, uh, perspective there. Obviously, with just having something so valuable, but yeah, yeah, it's so easy to lose too. Like, uh, right. it, you know, yeah. we we definitely get 
you know, the, the heartbreaking sob stories. I just had one the other day. I was like, man, I lost my knife. Is there anything you can do? It's like, Oh man, I'm sorry. Um, but I guess you guys must have a kind of similar perspective because, you know, you guys make nice high end packs and that's what attracted me to the brand, not only being neighbors, but like, I think you guys make the best packs in the game. Um, and that comes at a certain price point. Mm-hmm. So yeah. do you see like a similar kind of thing? It's like, but you also love seeing those packs like dirty and beat up yeah. used, right? Yeah. yeah d- definitely people use the packs I and mean, we certainly see the, we've had the guy where it was like, you know, his dog chews up all the straps and stuff <laughs> and he's heartbroken. Like I just bought this, you know, three months ago yeah. and we try to, you know, give him a good discount or something to help him out. Help, help ease the pain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Steve, were you aware of like CRK before you guys became neighbors? Yeah. So interesting enough, I reached out to your dad um, when I was doing, uh, when I started designing the solid broadheads. Oh, um, makes sense. Yeah. And I had actually sh- I had brought a knife down there to get sharpened uh, prior hmm. to that too. Um, but I started, okay. uh, I think I told you about this, Tim, was that Gerber Freeman S30V. And I, I remember hmm. yeah, I, it, my dad got it for me as a birthday gift or something like that. And was, took it elk hunting and I was amazed at how well it held an edge. And then, so I was super yeah. intrigued by that S30V steel. And I just started designing that broadhead. I was like, that's the steel I want to use. And then I reached out to yeah. your dad and, and he got back to me with some, um, but yeah, just, just helpful stuff on it. And, yeah. uh, and then that, I ended up designing the broadhead using that steel and, uh, yeah. So that, that was kind of my, um, yeah, I, I think I was just Googling S30V and then it came up that Chris Reeves helped develop, design the steel and it happened to be a local company. And yeah, I just, I remember thinking that was pretty cool. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Do you remember, th- can you remember what year that was? that you reached out i don't i just be curious yeah no yeah. worries yeah no chris is always uh he always tried to share as much as he possibly could and, and he said to uh bill harsey who's a designer out of oregon that we work with like he's designed a bunch of our um, military knives kind of the bigger knives fixed blades uh when they worked with crucible to bring out s30v chris told bill and he said look we can't hide any secrets. This isn't like proprietary to us. We have to get this out to the industry and help anyone that's like trying to, trying to work with it or use it. We, we got to get this thing to fly, you know? And that's just always been the, I guess the thought process from us. It's like, if you have a question, like come through the shop, I'll show you everything that we do. I got no secrets, you know? Mm. That's cool. That's yeah. That's great. Can you elaborate on that a little bit um, with your dad? Really? Not only, I didn't think through till now, but I almost equate it to like rifle builders, right? Like you have some quote unquote custom rifle builders who aren't actually making anything. They're like taking parts and assembling it. Right. So they're buying actions, they're buying barrels, they're buying stocks and, you know, they're doing some work, right? Like they're chambering the barrel or what have you, but it's, then you got true custom rifle builders where they're, right. they're truly making some parts. They're doing a lot more machining, things like that. And so you guys aren't just like buying some steel off a shelf and cutting it to a certain profile and sharpening it a certain way and buying handle material. As you said, you guys are making everything and even down to the element of the steel uh, with your dad being part of some of that development with crucible. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, we're, uh, we're definitely not a custom knife shop. Um, Chris's custom days, you know, ended really in the, the early eighties, not that he hasn't done cut, you know, various customs on the side, but he always said like, we're a, a full fledged production shop. Even if we're 
small. <laughs> um, you know, we have about 40, I think 41 employees. Um, so yeah, we, we source the handles, the t- titanium for the handles in, in blanks and the blade steel in blanks, all the different parts. Uh, I actually have two screw machines on the way, ordered up and on the way that should be arriving in July, August. We'll start like making our own body screws and all that stuff too. Um, just vertically integrating as much as we possibly can. Uh, and with the blade steel thing, that was kind of an interesting, um, I guess like era. So that was S 30 V came out just at the turn of the century. So, uh, just uh, 2000 or something like that. Um, it was something that crucible, so crucible steel out of Syracuse, they actually manufacture the steel. So if you see any steels that say CPM in front of it, it's made by them and CPM stands for crucible powdered metal. Um, and it's a methodology that just creates a very pure, very consistent steel. So you don't have, you know, weird hard spots or weird, like it's just very consistent. It's like dough that's been, you know, kneaded very thoroughly or whatever. Um, and so there's, it was a time they're, they're playing with this chemical combination, um, this chemistry and, and I think they'd even made a little bit of it and, we just started to get to know those guys. I, I'm not even sure how, like my mom and my dad would be the best ones for all the, the crazy history there. But we also fell into um, a, a project where we, we made the knives for, and we still do make the knives for the, the graduates of the special forces green berets. This all kind of came together at the same time. And the knife industry was very in need of a, a new steel. Um, we were using a steel called BG42 before that, uh, which was uh, easy to sharpen, really corrosion resistant. It had a lot of chromium in it, so it polished up really nice, but it wasn't very wear resistant. It wasn't very tough. Um, and toughness basically being as simple as like stick the knife in a, a door jam and bend on it and see, see how quickly it breaks, right? Uh, so that was the thought process there. So let's let's try and get something that has a higher vanadium content. That's, that's really what it comes down to in the, in the chemistry. Um, so that's where that B in S 30 B, um, stands for. And so that started, I guess, like a tree branch of chemistry design that turned into S 30 or S 30 V. And then Chris worked with crucible again, just to tweak the chemistry a little bit to get to S 35, which gave it a little more ductility, a little more flexibility in it. Um, and then a handful of years ago, or just a couple of years ago, we worked with them again on S45 VN, which just added a little bit more chromium, a little more corrosion resistance, and a little more edge retention, um, backing the toughness back a little bit. So your the edge retention being like how long it stays sharp before you really need to sharpen it again. So it's not that Chris is a metallurgist or I'm a metallurgist or any of that. Uh, we would kind of just work with Crucible and the metallurgists at Crucible and uh, just kind of do some in-shop testing, whether it's making a knife and going and beating it up and trying to see all the properties of it or running a bunch of blanks through machines because that's the other, the other side of it is the manufacturing, how it grinds, how it machines, how it heat treats, all this kind of stuff. Like that all has to plan and work as well as possible uh, in the big picture too. <clears throat> when you're talking about edge retention on some of these different steels, uh, probably skipping ahead on a question Mark's got in here, but like, oh, yeah, is, that, is any of that you're cutting up an elk? Is any of that actually translate into real world? You know what I mean? Between S30, S45, S90, are you going to like 
make it through an elk with S90 without having to sharpen and not make it out through an elk with S30 or, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and a lot of things can like affect that edge retention, <clears throat> but yeah, that's what you're it, it, in cutting up an elk. That's one of the big things you're looking for is, is a high degree of edge retention. So, um, you know, a steel like S90V has inherently a, a higher edge retention. Um, I'm not super, super familiar with S, S90V, but I believe this, I've looked at the chemistry and seen it compared to the other steels quite a bit. I believe what you're sacrificing there is kind of an overall toughness. Um, and I should put this, I, I should put this plug in here to find out everything that I'm saying wrong in this podcast about blade steels, go to knifestealnerds.com and it's ran by a website, uh, <laughs> by a, a gentleman named Dr. Laren Thomas, who is an absolute, like just total nerd for this stuff and super, super smart. And he brought out a, a new blade steel, which we can get into later, but, um, you can really see some cool comparisons on that website, but that's kind of what you're sacrificing there. So S th the thought, one of the th other thought processes with, and why we liked S30 V S35 and kind of even into 45 is they're generally a very balanced steel. Um, and that balance is kind of like in a triangle. So if you have toughness is one point corrosion resistance and edge retention is like your three different points. You're trying to keep that, that triangle, uh, was that an equilateral triangle? Like the, the most balanced, um, you can push and skew that. So say you, you take a, a steel called a four V you're going to, you can boost the toughness and boost the edge retention, but you lose your uh, corrosion resistance. Um, so like a steel like that, if you're going to use it and we we're actually currently using it on our, our military knives, you really want to have a coating on it of some sort like Cerakote or KG gun coat or something like that. Um, Cause the, I mean, you look at it sideways and it, and it starts to rust. Um, <laughs> so it really, it's like, I've, yeah, like blank sitting on the shelf, they start to rust. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, I saw, so Benchmade came out with the altitude a couple years ago in S90 V and it was like the super thin little tiny handle, like the perfect, uh, little, you know, backpack hunting knife. And they brought it out in S90 V and that was one of the first times that I saw, I was like, man that's a really good use for S90V. Now you need somebody that knows, you know, what they're doing with it. You can't go pry the head off the elk. You got to keep cutting, you know, it's not going to have that prying strength at all. Um, so on the other side of that with the edge retention, so, so it's going to be highly wear resistant on the edge, but it could chip more often, right? So if you get into like a bone or something like that, you could chip it up. So not only is it like choosing your steel, sharpening it kind of nicely or, or correctly in some, some sort of fashion there. It's also just knowing like what you're doing with it and, and for what intent. Right. So yeah, that's the, that's the thought process there. Yeah. How much does, um, you know, we could keep comparing steels and talk about different attributes of them, but take any given of those steels, whether it's S90, S30, S35, et cetera, how much does that heat treat? really matter um i again i don't know much about this but i i've seen people talk about well you know so and so's s30 is better than somebody else's s30 right. and it's partially because the heat treat but i will say i feel like i've picked up knives from different uh manufacturers that have supposedly the same steel and feel like they perform differently or sure. wear differently for example is that really a factor of heat treat do you think so it's like 100 percent super important and then like 
once once it's just heat treated properly, basically, it, it it's fine. Um, it, it's like not really important. So it's and all the guys that are big nerds about heat treat, they're gonna like eat me alive for saying that. But um, look, you need a good proper heat treat. You need to know like it needs to be done correctly. And there's small little tweaks and things, but it's like baking a cake. There's not, it's, it's very science-based. It's not super hot tricks type, type, uh, a skill. It's like, just get a good proper heat treat on it. And, and you're going to be okay. We used a company in town, uh, named Aceco or called Aceco and Ken Barker over there. He's a, a metallurgist and a big, huge knife nerd. And we work, I've worked with Ken quite closely. My dad's worked with Ken over the years quite closely. And so, um, we've got our, our heat treat process dialed in pretty well for this, but so that's, I mean, you can go down the rabbit hole and there's plenty of, of the internet world to like learn about heat treating and all the little tiny nuancey things, get a proper heat treat in it. The next biggest thing that's going to matter is just the blade shape, how it's designed, you know, the thickness of the blade, the width of the blade, uh, you know, how the bevel's made, all, all that kind of stuff. Blade shapes can be a huge, huge factor into just how that knife performs. So, I, I it, yeah, it has to be heat treated correctly. You can't ignore that, but I don't know. Does that happen? You kind of pre-cut them and then it's heat treated and then it goes like into sharpening, putting the edge on it? Or when does the heat treat happen? Yeah, um, a lot of people do it di- differently. We we essentially grind them flat, uh, just surface grinding. And then we profile it and put like all the holes in it and the, and the, the profile of like what you see. Um, and then he goes out to heat treat, comes back. We do a little bit more grinding and fine grinding and, and just making it dead flat. Like the, the blades are flat to plus or minus one tenth of a thousandth of an inch, uh, before they go into the hollow grinder. And we actually put those, those two big primary hollow grinding or hollow ground bevels on their con- concave bevels. Um, a lot of guys will grind soft. Um, we, and again, blade forms is, is a dark, long, deep hole that you can <laughs> get all the opinions on both sides of, of, of this. But we like it grinding hard. It, one, it, it's a little bit nicer on the machines. It doesn't gum up the wheel as much, so we can get a little more consistency. But <clears throat> you get a monolithic heat treat in that part before you go put the the grind in there. If you put that bevel on, um, that edge is a lot thinner. So when it gets cooked in the oven, um, it can kind of crisp up that edge quite a bit in kind of, uh, uh, I guess, layman's terms, that'd be a a way of explaining it. So we like to have that monolithic heat treat and then go in and and put that bevel in afterwards. Uh, Then we'll do a couple other more uh, processes. The knife gets put put together and then we'll put that final edge on, the actual sharpened edge on very last. You touched on earlier, we were talking about steels, about corrosion and coating and things like that. We had two separate but related listener questions that came through. So one guy just asked, is stainless truly stainless? And then another guy asked, why do some knives have coated blades? Is it functional or only aesthetic? So uh, touched on it briefly, but can you kind of talk about stainless, how stainless is it? And then the purpose of coatings? Yeah, I mean, I guess stainless is a... Uh it'll cover or it's thrown around to cover like a broad amount of steels. Um, you know, your silverware knife that you pull out of your drawer and it says stainless on it. Well, that's a proper stainless, but you go and try and put a pro- like a, a nice edge on that thing. And it's just not going to hold it. It's going to be super soft. You know, you can take that knife and just bend it with your hands basically. 
Um, I can't remember what the threshold is, but it's essentially a threshold of, of um, I think it's actually in corrosion resistance testing or how quickly something corrodes, like basically an assault water type test. Um, and there's, there is a threshold there. I'm not super familiar with it. Again, that knife steel nerds.com. I think they go into that there. Uh, but those steels are going to have a high chromium content. So that gives you that shininess and it gives you that corrosion resistance. The stainless, the term stainless gets thrown over a lot of the steels that we use, like the CPM steels, S30V, S35, all these. They're technically not stainless steels, um, but they have a high level and a sufficient enough level of stainless properties that we don't mind using them. And they're not going to just kind of rust when you're looking at it. Um, so that, that kind of, I guess, is, that just speaks to the stainless term, I guess. Um, so coating, uh, it's not just for looks. Um, it, it does depend on the steel. Uh, so with like the, the knives that we did for you guys, that was just for looks because Steve wanted it in black. But um, <laughs> we didn't need to actually coat those. I'd give you a hard time. Um, the S because we did those in S45. There's enough chromium in them. They don't really don't rust, but Steve really liked the look of the, the black. So hell that's yeah, fair. I, I wanted cool. orange, but you wouldn't let me do orange. That's fair. <laughs> you know, that's fair. <laughs> I was like, there's no way I'm doing an orange knife. <laughs> to be fair. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um, but yeah. So if you, t if you take a steel, so like four V or something that doesn't, that, that sacrifices a lot of that uh, corrosion resistance, that's when you're going to want a coating on it. Uh, it's similar with, with, uh, like rifle barrels. So a lot of, a lot of rifle barrels are made of like 416, uh, 416 really only gets its, its corrosion resistant properties once it's been heat treated. Um, and even then it, they're not super, super high. So yeah, if you're going to be trudging around in the woods with it, a lot of times the, the, the manufacturers put in a Cerakote on there and that's where those gun coach started showing up. Um, so yeah, it just depends on the steel that you're using, really. Yeah. So you mentioned the knife. Uh, I guess Steve, you intro. Like, how did it come about? I I don't know if it was as simple as, "Hey, Chris Reeves knives is across the street. I want to make a knife." But talk about it, what we did, and uh, yeah, tell us a little bit of the story of how it started from your per per perspective. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to to build a a knife. I mean, I think I just wanted, and I just approached him about it, and then he was. Tim was basically already working on this knife. So we just kind of paired up and uh, we didn't do, I, I guess I didn't have a whole, whole lot of input on the shape and design of it. It was just uh, going through the handle selection and a few little things like that. Um, but yeah, it's been a fantastic knife. Tim, I mean, you, you can speak to the history of that because it's something your dad had designed, what, 20 years ago or something? Yeah, something something along those those lines about yeah, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, the knife is called the Inyoni. Um, and Chris had played with little like bird and trout knife uh, uh, patterns, you know, shapes for ages or maybe 30 years. Um, he really settled into this one that he called the Inyoni, I think about that 15, 20 years ago. And it, if you look up Chris Reeve knives Inyoni in Google images, it'll show up the, with the first version. And uh, Steve, I let you borrow that one. It had like mm -hmm. a little teardrop wood handle on it. Mm -hmm. Um, that was the first one. I think it was a little esoteric at the time, maybe for the industry. Um, we never made that many of them, but Chris really liked it. And it was kind of an idea that he had, um, super minimalist handle. That's just kind of this little teardrop in the back. Um, really thin. Um, but I just always loved that shape. Um, 
what's funny is years before we brought that out as a production knife, um, that same shape, but with a full wood handle, uh, Chris is working with Browning to do as a special knife for them with like little Browning coin logo, you know, like the little deer mm-hmm. head logo. Um, and whoever saw like the cost of the knife just nixed the project because they're too expensive. Um, years later, I talked to the lady that had to make that call and she was like, I wanted to do it so bad, but we had to work within a budget. So that's, that was kind of interesting. Uh, so since I was a kid, I wanted to bring that knife back with a full handle on it. And, you know, my Carta is a huge, uh, hugely popular material. It's great for the, the kind of abuse that you put into these kind of knives. Um, and my Carta is just layers of, of phenolic resin and, and canvas, um, or at least the canvas, my Carta that we use. So, um, yeah, so, so it kind of came from, there's another knife that we're going to bring out here in June. So both these knives are going to debut, uh, in June. We've kind of shared about the Inyoni a bit. There's another knife called the backpacker. That's, uh, going to be kind of slightly bigger brother to this knife. And Chris had worked out a really cool handle concept on that. And so I essentially we took that handle and morphed it to fit the Inyoni. And I started showing Steve and he's like, God, this, you know, this is really cool. I like it. You know, let's like, how soon can I get one? Like, well, (laughs) (laughs) soon. And that kind of turned into a little longer than soon, but uh, I was stoked to, to get you that whole, you know, pile of knives. And for us to be able to work with like very directly with um, I guess there's like a, a, some really serious hard hitting hunters um, in the, in this like backpacking hunting world that, that is kind of emerging in a funny way um, as opposed to, and I, I don't want to say the term Bubba hunting, but, but I think everybody knows what I mean when I say that there's this growing niche of, and it's almost become the standard now of this like r- r- hunting out of a, a super lightweight backpacks. Right. And so it's really cool. Like, Hey, let's try and make a knife that can fit that world. And then we're just really blessed to be able to work with you guys. Cause I think you guys do a really good job at that. So yeah. And I love your guys packs. And so, you know, like, can we get a knife in one of them packs <laughs> <laughs> and literally across the street? So, I mean, win, win, mm-hmm. win. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just been great getting to know like all you guys. It's just a, a great crew. Um, Steve, you've chose a, a good amount of people to put around you. And, and, uh, so yeah, it's like, you get, we've gotten to know you guys, you've gotten to know some of our crew and it's just a, a cool little area. So it's like, when you have fertile soil like that, you gotta, you gotta take advantage of it, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. So talk about, you know, we've thrown out S30, S90, uh, there's many more S35, S45, and a lot of guys listening in have heard of those and probably have some experience with them. And again, we can't, necessarily compare each one and talk about the pros and cons. I think at least sure. in my own experience, having used God, everyone that I just mentioned personally, like they <laughs> yeah. all perform well. Um, yeah. so I think you can get into a little bit of a splitting hairs conversation, no pun intended there, but mm. why S 45 in particular than for this knife that we built? Uh, really it's, it's the steel that we've been using in house. Um, again, we kind of, chase steels that are very balanced so that I can use them as much as we can throughout the whole line. I really don't like to have all sorts of different steels coming through. Uh, we're known for just kind of jumping into the, into one type of steel and staying in it for quite a long time until something that checks all the boxes for us, you know, better comes down the road. Um, so currently we're still making all of our, 
our folding knives in S45. Um, we decided to make these out of S45 to get that little better edge retention. Um, where our fixed blades right now, we're, we're using 4V and it just wouldn't be quite as, uh, again, you'd have to coat it. Like you get a great amount of toughness out of it. You can get some pretty great edge retention out of 4V. Um, but just the all around like use and abuse and like blood and wet, like the, 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 the S45 will be a better balanced steel for those kind of environments. Um, so there, I, I have to speak to this. So there's a new steel that just was developed uh, by Dr. Laren Thomas recently called CPM uh, Magna Cut. And it really has, seems to be like the new wonder steel uh, for lack of a better term. It, you know, so I was talking about that triangle. You can only, you know, for, for up till now, you could only ever pull like say two of the, the corners out and you'd be losing out on the other corner. Um, Laren figured out a way to kind of grab all three corners and, and widen all of them. So the corrosion resistance is like off the charts. Um, the toughness is as tough as 4V and the edge retention is absolutely incredible. It's, it's just like S45. So that's a new steel that we're going to be moving all of our lines of knives to um, probably by the end of this year, uh, not to throw another blade steel into the mix, but um, really in the knife community, like MagnaCut is the hot, the hot new steel. And it just really seems to check a lot of those boxes. So, um, so uh, Jake, your, your knife got broken, which I was so happy that happened because I want this kind of feedback. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. right. So like the, the, what eighth of the, the tip like broke off yeah. eighth of an inch. Yep. And that was, that was one of the drawbacks of stepping from 35 into 45 is yeah. We'd have an increase of, um, corrosion resistance by a couple, you know, a, a good little margin, uh, a palpable increase of, uh, edge retention, but we definitely had a slight reduction in toughness. And so you get into a weird spot that maybe some, you should keep cutting as opposed to prying, like that knife will have a little bit, uh, less in the toughness. Um, you know, in, in what we're trying to achieve with this knife, is a super slicey, super sharp, like long lasting edge. Um, we're not trying to make a knife that's prying ball joints apart, things like that. Um, think of this as like a, a like a Havilon or something like that, um, but you can sharpen it yourself. Um, you know, it's like you can't pry a, 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 a ball joint open with a Havilon. It's, it's a little, you know, surgical plate. Um, so anyway, so with this, uh, with us rolling these knives into MagnaCut in the future, I think it'll completely alleviate that. I mean, all my Sebenza that I have in my pocket right now, I bent the, like half inch of the tip on my, on my knife, like damn near 30 degrees and, and bent it back and it didn't break off. So um, I think that'll kind of help there. We did learn from Jake, from your knife, we're adding just a, like a little bit of a roll in the hollow grind uh, that'll kind of like shoulder out going towards the tip. That'll bring a little bit more thickness and strength out there. Yeah. Um, but you know, I didn't see it as like something that's detrimental to the knife I and mean, shit. Knives can break. You can do weird stuff with them, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And that, and that was, I think Corey had borrowed the knife, right? And was prying into a knee joint <laughs> to pop off the lower. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we were trying leg. to pop off the head and definitely oh, wasn't. Head. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we were definitely prying more than cutting. So yeah. definitely user error and that, that can happen. Yeah. Well, that's what I want. I was like, go, go break them, like go use them and break them. And like, but 
I think my stipulation to you is like, if you break it and you come back and you're like, oh, I don't know what happened. Like, I'll never give you another knife again. <laughs> just like you just got to tell me what happened show me what happened and and that was cool you know and we got to check it out and uh mike bradshaw who who uh works in my hand grind room he just reprofiled that beautifully so it's just a little bit shorter version of uh what it is and and i mean you if you didn't know you wouldn't know that it, it was broken off so yeah, for the record, yeah. I have the lightest in Yoni on the market. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> got like one gram off of it. Yeah, <laughs> it still worked though. We still finished up my deer. I, I didn't stop cutting. So, it, it's great. Yeah. Very sharp knife. So, how do you guys measure edge retention? Do you have something scientific? <clears throat> Just cut a piece of rope as many times as you can? Like, what's the, what do you do in house? Yeah, I mean, basically as simple as that. I mean, sometimes it's just like chopping a two by four as long as you can. Um, I think these days there's a, there's a handful of guys in the shop that know uh, blade steels pretty well and know, like know how to sharpen pretty well. And, and so when we bring like get new steels into blades, like prototypes, I'll get those blades and those guys knives. And we just get a kind of a general feedback. You get to get a, a sense and a feel of the steel as you use it and you sharpen it a couple of times and cut different things. So it's, it's strangely very unscientific on our end. Um, it's, it, we, it's a lot more real world just use. Um, but we do trust the data coming from guys like Dr. Laren Thomas. Um, you know, we can read these data sheets and read these reports and he gets into very specific, uh, testing for edge retention, corrosion resistance, toughness, that kind of stuff, like where ways that they're measuring. Um, so there's like something called the Catra test where it cuts a little, little wire and there's like i can't remember all the i've played with one of the machines at like one of the shows and we're doing all this like testing grabbing different knives and it'll tell you basically the sharpness of that edge um so those are pretty interesting but yeah for us it's it's surprisingly unscientific if you will um you just get to kind of get a feel of it yeah so you mentioned earlier you know cutting versus prying and and all that and guys definitely don't always use a knife for their intended purposes. Uh, and then you think of breaking down an elk, for example, it's like what's maybe the best to skin it is potentially different than what's best to debone it, which is potentially what's different, uh, for, you know, breaking joints. Right. So a question did come through of how many knives and what style of knives do you carry in your pack when hunting? Do you carry a skinning and a deboning knife or just one do it all knife? And then also, do you carry a separate pocket knife for chores or do you use your game processing knife for everything? So uh, thoughts on that from your perspective, especially now that uh, you've been hunting quite a bit as well. Yeah. And, and like the obvious part of that is, is it's such a personal preference and everybody's going to kind of run things different. But um, the consensus between me and, and a couple of guys here at the shop, so like did in Yoni, the thought process behind that was have it super wicked sharp, bury it as deep into your pack, like with your kill kit or, or, or wherever that you won't touch it and do stupid stuff with it until you shot the animal um, and use that for everything that you need to do on the animal. And then I carry, I always have like a, a large Sebenza in my pocket, um, which is one of our folding knives. I, I can't really go anywhere without it. So I, that's the two knives that I use. Um, I think there's a lot of, there can be a lot of sense to having maybe like a, 
you know, like all the bushcraft guys are like, well, you don't need anything but a shoestring and a bushcraft knife. It's like, well, fair enough. But I did spend like a lot of money on a tent and I like that. Um, and my sleeping bag. So, you know, we rely on these different technologies that we, that we hike up the, the hill with. Um, so when it comes to like bushcrafting knives or survival knives, I mean, if I was, if I was worried that we're going to, uh, you know, have to have another cutting tool to do a lot of timber or, or, or guess, I guess bushcrafty stuff, I'd probably pack a, a hatchet before like another knife. Um, but a lot of what, what, you know, we're doing here is, is counterintuitive to be, be packing a hatchet around. Um, you know, maybe for like getting through, a like, uh, hip bones and stuff like that. I mean, I've, I've definitely seen that or, or saws and things. Uh, I do carry a little tiny pack saw that folds up. So, so I guess that would just double as that. Um, but yeah, people run different. You know, I think talking with Steve, like you just have one knife, right? Just one. I mean, yeah, I just, just take an Inyoni and throw it in the kill kit and, um, fish it out if I need to cut something, but uh, it does seem like I never pack one, but whenever someone with me has got a knife in their pocket, I'm like, Hey, can I borrow that for a second? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Ask ask that 20 times. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm just such a lightweight wussy that, uh, it's like, well, I'm not packing too nice. I got one in the pack if I need it. Um, although the, you know, yeah. the way matter of ounces, but yeah, I'm also just a less is more. I just want less things with me. So, yeah. um, it just seems to less clutter is better for me. Yeah, no, I go, I totally get that. Yeah. Um, and then Steve, you surprised me too. Cause we were talking sharpeners at one time, one point. Cause oh, yeah. And yeah. I said like, don't do you carry a sharpener. You're like, no, just you know, good steel and good mark, mark, right? Yeah, <laughs> <I> just <brought laughs> mark. There you go. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I mean, that when I first came to you, I was like, I, you know, a we need to build an awesome knife, but b you need to be there needs to be a stupid easy way to sharpen it. Um, right. And you were like, well, I'll just grab a rock or something. I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> I, I, I can't, I can't barely sharpen it at home with like a professional Screw sharpener. You, man. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but it, it's funny. I mean, it's truly like I, I asked around and. I don't know. It was maybe two out of 10 guys felt proficient in sharpening a knife. Um, that are, that are hunters that get after it. Um, yeah, it's, it's a pretty small portion. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's like surprising to me in, in many ways, or like we've kind of laughed being the coming from the knife guy side is like, it's always like, well, you spend all year shooting your rifle, dialing it in shooting, you know, 600 yards and, scopes and reloads and like all this crazy stuff and it's like but you don't know how to sharpen your pocket knife like (laughs) wait a minute like you're gonna like if everything goes correct like unless you have multiple tags on the hunt like if everything goes correct you're you know you're firing that rifle once you're packing it all over the place you pack and you shoot it once and then you're gonna spend like the next like six to eight hours with this like stupid knife in your hand uh you know that you can't sharpen so that's always kind of like the the teasing joke that we have um (laughs) but we're also like joking at a bunch of guys that like fill way more tags than we do every year. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> jokes on us. that, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we actually so, just I, I, recently mentioned on the podcast, Tim, uh, like blade angle and um, flat versus like a convex. And cause what I've always carried in the field for sharpening is a, like a DMT duo or yeah. dia stone or something. Um, yeah. and obviously with that type of surface, it's going to be easier, 
for me to sharpen, resharpen, you know, on that flat, hard surface. Um, whereas you get into more of a convex edge, it isn't as easy, at least for me with that type of sharpener to use in the field. Um, so what, you know, and again, this is like partial preference, at least from what I understand, but in terms of those blade, uh, geometries, when it comes to it, what do you prefer? At least what are the pros and cons versus having that, you know, that flat sharp V versus that convex edge. Right. So we put a convex edge uh, on all of our knives. And so I, I really sit in that camp for the most part. Um, we put about an 18 to 20 degree. So it's per side uh, bevel on there. Um, we, it's, that's kind of known as, like, I guess, a working edge. So with it being convex, it's going to be a little bit stronger. So say you took that knife and you stuck it, you know, stick that edge like nicely into a bone or a, or a stick or something. And then you twisted sideways without, you know, before you pulled it out, the strength along that edge is going to be higher. If you have that, uh, that convex edge, um, where a, a, a straight edge or a flat bevel down there will be, you can get like a steeper angle to it. Like, so you could be in like 15 or 12 degrees and it'll cut like, you can't believe, but you have, you do risk having a thinner edge that could, that could break. So it is a little bit of that trade-off and, um, honestly that as far as I'm concerned, it's a personal preference. There are plenty of guys, uh, uh, customers of ours, collectors of ours, that they get a brand new Sebenza, they throw it right on like their wicked edge or, or a sharpening system that puts a flat bevel on there. And that's the first thing they do, they do is put that on. It's like, Hey, you know, more power to you. Like if that's what you like. So that's, that's the general thought process there on the edge shapes. Um, for sharpeners in the field, I actually carry something very similar. It's like, it's a red DMT little stone. Um, and it's got two little plastic handles that fold over like a, like a butterfly knife type thing. Yeah. That's exactly um, what I have. Yeah. I love it. Cause it's just so small. It's, it weighs virtually nothing. Um, and you can sharpen all sorts of stuff up. You know, you could do broadheads on it or, or, or whatever your buddy's knife apparently. Um, so yeah, that's what I carry. I mean, WorkSharp makes some really cool uh, backpacking. Um, like they're really starting to tune into like the backpacking hunter. They've brought out a couple of products recently. I can't remember the names, but um, I think the one that I had, and I I, I keep buying them and giving them to friends, um, but they're like field sharpener. The WorkSharp mm -hmm. is field sharpener. It's a little heavier than those DMT stones but it's a little more versatile and it has like the bevels on each side. It's got a 20 degree like ramp that you can kind of start the knife out on. So it does help, uh, you know, if you're a little, little less familiar with what a, a 18 or 20 degree angle kind of feels like on a stone. Um, and it's got like a little leather strop section there too. Um, a strop is another really lightweight, uh, sharpening tool that you can throw in your pack. Um, like I'm holding right now in my office is just like a, like two inch wide by maybe six or seven inch long piece of leather. Um, it's suede on one side, smooth on the other, and you can put some various compounds. And again, you can find that corner of the internet where you can go deep down the strop rabbit hole of different compounds and all that. But with the convex edge, it's really nice. Um, a lot of times maybe you'd, and, and Mark, you might try this is start with stropping because it follows that convex curve and a lot of times when your knife's dull or feels dull, it's just rolled the edge over and that strop's going to pull that burr off without losing the material mm -hmm. um, and kind of bring it back straight. 
So you can kind of start there and then maybe work to your, if, if that doesn't quite get it, work to your stones and then finish off on that strop because it'll also work as like a, a final polishing step. Cool. So, I was always yeah. amazed with, with solid. That's basically what I told everybody to do. It's the best way I figured out was just use yeah. a strop. Like you never even had to put it on a stone um, unless you hit like really did damage to the edge, but just shooting it, yeah. you know, 30, 40 times into a foam target, you can go right back to a strop and, and it was, as you kind of hinted there, like more forgiving than a stone. Yeah. Um, it seemed to be to me that, uh, yeah, you could not me, you know, maybe you're 21, but it, because it's the leather's kind of flexing with it, it would just help sharpen mm-hmm. it up without actually like, you know, for me, if I took the, took it to a stone, it would end up duller than when I started. <laughs> yeah. No. And that you like on a, on, even on a good day, there's risk that I'll do that. And I'm not like an expert sharpener by any means. There's guys here in the shop that are way better than me. Um, but a strop is such a good tool. Cause it's like, let's start from maybe like not removing steel if we don't have to. Mm. And then you can start repro and I call it like reprofiling basically. Um, you know, you start with your, if you have multiple grits, you're going to start with your lowest cause you're going to have to kind of take more material off, get that thing to the profile you want. And then you can step up to your grits from there and kind of finish off on the strop. So yeah, it's like, you kind of go first and last with this drop, if you will. Gotcha. For, for, for like a field sharpening. That's the other thing is like, I mean, a, a huge piece of advice would be like sharpen, make sure your knife is razor sharp before you go up the hill. Um, you know, be like dialing your scope and you're not going to, you're not going to sight your rifle in like at the trailhead. If it, if, <laughs> unless you have to, I guess. Um, but it's like, make sure it's sharp on the hill and then just maintain it while you're up there as opposed to like getting up there. And, oh, you know, I haven't sharpened it from last season. Maybe I should, uh, maybe I should get this thing uh, ready to roll. And like, you're just sitting there at the downhill. So that's a, like obvious advice, right? But- Once you become a pro like Tim though, you don't need to bring a strop anymore. You can just drop it on the seam of your pack. I remember you telling me that. And I'm like, how do you do that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, shoot, I've used like the nylon uh, straps and stuff like that. Or you find like, uh, you know, like the triple stitch, anything like that. I mean, half the time. So I wear Carhartt double knees on, on regular days, not like up on the hill, but um, you know, I'll just work my knife edge backwards on my Carhartt double knees. And I've got enough dust from my dirt road in them. It usually works as like a polishing compound. <laughs> Neat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's good. You mentioned like, as you said, obviously start sharp, but just don't wait too long either just to yeah. touch it up. I mean, that's one thing that I've seen guys do. It's like, you know, Oh God, my knife, I, it needs some work. And it's like, goodness gracious, what did you do to this thing? Like you've neglected it and abused it. And then now yeah. you're, you're just starting from a bad spot. So there's yeah. oftentimes where even though I maybe could get through an elk, you know, without resharpening, it's like, all right, you know, especially for quartering it, it's like you do one side, you're getting ready to flip it. It's like, go ahead and touch that blade up. Even if you don't feel like you yeah. have to, before you start working on the other side. Yeah. It's like when you get, when you stand up and kind of like pop your back, you know, you're like, Oh man, let's get working on the other side. Like touch it up a little bit, take a drink of water. (laughs) And the other thing too, is just like getting, getting any fat and stuff like that off of it as Mm -hmm. well, uh, before you go to sharpen it. Cause that stuff can obviously prevent it from getting, you know, good contact with metal, but also can gunk up that sharpener, uh, as well. So just giving it that quick, like wipe on the pants, get off the fat and gunk, and then, you know, touch that sharpener. Is is there really like never enough times, you know, you, you can touch it up, like for a pocket knife and a hunting knife, like how often are you touching it up, you know, on a daily work life or, you know, in the field. And that goes for all three of you, not just Tim, you know, how often do you guys see yourself touching the knife up? Shoot. Yeah. 
my, my kind of standard answer for that, because I've been asked quite, quite a many times, like, well, how long is, how long is the knife last? Like, I don't know. It's not like 500 cuts and then you're done. And that's, that's the same for everybody. I always kind of jokingly say like, well, how long, how long does Steve's pair of shoes wear out versus Mark's versus Jake's, right? It's going to be different timelines, right? You put different wear into them and, and use things different. So I I'm notorious for having a partially dull pocket knife because I'm always in a hurry and I sharpen it up kind of good enough and then keep rolling. Uh, <laughs> you know, but then like I did my deer, not last year, but the year before. Um, and I, I didn't have to sharpen my knife at all. It went right through that whole deer and, and felt pretty good when I got home. So it just depends. I mean, I guess if you're in a bigger animal than a deer, yeah, I, I could see possibly it running out and then conditions. I could, that could be the other factor. I mean, it could just be, you could just be in like the nastiest weather, you know, you could be super tired and you're, you're, you're all intents and purposes to like treat the knife correctly and make the right cuts, but you might be in a hurry and, and start kind of beating that knife up a little bit more, you know, we all know what, it, what it's like out there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, I didn't touch it up at all. Like my Idaho buck didn't touch it up. And then the buck with Mark and then Mark touched it up for me that night. And then my second buck. And then you, and then after that it broke and then you guys reprofiled it. And then I helped my brothers, but like, yeah, I've never done it in the field. And, and ideally, I mean, I, that's what we hope for. Like, it'd be nice to be able to like do two elk and walk off the mountain and like not have to think about sharpening. I've certainly noticed, um, if, if I'm really taking my time and I'm careful that the blade edge isn't like contacting bone, if I just stay and hide and, and meet flesh, uh, a knife can get through an elk. Um, but if, yeah, the second you get in a hurry and you're taking off the back straps and you're running that blade along the, the, the bone there on the spine and you're cutting it up at the, you know, the, the head off the base of the neck, you're cutting off the knee joints, then, then it can get you know it gets dull in a hurry once you start doing that yeah and then like i remember talking to a guy he's like man this steel just doesn't maybe it's the heat treat or something like this steel just doesn't stay sharp he's like man i get like a quarter of the way through the elk and i'm sharpening all the time I get to talking more get to talking more and he proceeds to tell me like every time he goes to set the knife down he sticks the blade into the dirt <laughs> oh, and then pulls it back out i don't know if he wipes it off or not or he's like well I think that might be your problem, you know, it's just put it, lay it down instead of sticking it down in the dirt. So, you know, think about the knife, but even when, cause I, and I know it's like you're, you're hustling, you, you'll toss it off in the grass and then you get two hands in there and you're having to pull and do that kind of stuff. Um, I think Steve, you might've been telling me about, is it Tyler that will throw the sheath like around his neck mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. you or something like that. So yep. when you do have to put it away, you pop it up in there and then your hand's free and it's not off you know, somewhere yeah. else. Yeah. Yep. That, yeah. Just that's clever, you know, parachute cord necklace out of it. And, and then it's just always dangling from your neck. It's, it's super smart. Yeah. Versus. And then the, you don't lose it. <laughs> yeah. Then you don't lose it. Yeah. Cause that, I mean, that's why I was pushing so hard for an orange is like, mm-hmm. I like cut up, you know, cut the front leg, go to lift it off. I set the knife down. It's a Brown or black knife. Uh, I go to put the leg, walk 20 yards, set it on something. I come back like, Oh, where's the freaking knife now? You know, um, it's just a matter of time before, you know, you step on it or put your hand on it or whatever. Um, yeah. 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 And that, that's why like orange P cord is always a, yeah. yep. maybe a more style aesthetically pleasing way of doing it than bright orange paint. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's funny. 
Yeah. There was a, uh, a question that came through while we're talking a bit about sharpening. Um, this guy was asking in the context of S90V, maybe it relates to others or in general, but he basically was talking about the idea of like a very toothy edge. Um, and he was talking about starting with a coarse grit for sharpening, skipping some of the medium grits, and then just going from basically coarse to fine. Um, is there benefit to that or like this quote unquote toothy edge versus like following the process and maybe having a very fine uniform edge? Yeah. Uh, g- generally speaking, so it comes down to your use. I think it's less to do with blade steel specifically uh, and more, well, what are you, what are you going to go use it for? And what are you cutting up? Um, what I found is any, anytime you're jumping into game, so if you're having to cut through a hide or even like uh, uh, gutting a trout or something like that, a toothier edge is just going to break through that a little bit better. It's going to get more bite um, where you're going to, you know, with a, a smoother, more polished edge, it can be wicked sharp, but then you start pushing on there and like the scales on that trout and you're like, I know my knife is sharp, but like, why isn't it cutting? Right. So, um, I always recommend with hunters, uh, unless they're way off the deep end into, into knowing sharpening and that kind of thing. Um, I'd just go with a, a nice toothy edge and that's a great way to do it. You just start with your r- roughest stone, skip your medium, uh, grits and get right up into a fine that just kind of knocks the tops of the burrs off. Um, one of the things that I always, I always commend, uh, like Benchmade's factory edge is very toothy. So a lot of people run their thumb on there like, man, that, that sucker's sharp, you know? And a lot of it is because they, they just prefer to have a little bit of a toothier edge on there. Um, I would say a more polished edge is great for more, I guess, EDC, uh, tasks like your, your pocket knife. So that's where we kind of end up on a, uh, our factory sharpening is a little bit more uh, smooth and polished, but I've told the guys in the hand grind room, I said, if you ever have hunting knives come through, or if you get any of the knives from the guys from EXO lean towards the toothier side, just get a little more bite in that knife, in that edge. Um, again, like the guys in the forums and the, in the sharpening world will eat me up for, the, for that and have a, tons of opinions, but that's the, that's the basic kind of two sides to that, that story, I guess. Yeah. And we talk about toothy, I mean, maybe guys I should have explained, but if you imagine the idea of a serrated knife, but on a very microscopic scale, right? So it's yeah. still very clean, but there's like these call it micro serrations. If you want to call it that maybe in a toothy yeah. edge, is that a fair summary? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's exactly yeah, it. I, I kind of experienced, um, when you, you, you let me borrow that first in Yoni and I, was, I killed a, uh, elk in september and i was cutting it up and just taking the hide off it was like once the night i was i got the knife in the back and i'm like kind of like fighting it fighting it i'm like man this thing isn't quite sharp and then all of a sudden it like hit the right angle and it was just like just right up the back in in a matter of seconds and it was like because it was so polished like i had to kind of like get it to bite into the hide first and then and then it was freaking sharp because from there it just slid right through but it, it took like a like I, once I figured that out, it's like, all right, once I started skinning something, I just waited until like, you know, I'd adjust the angle of the, the knife. And then all of a sudden it would just slip right through. Whereas the toothier stuff I've used in the past didn't seem to be as finicky on that, but then maybe you lose your edge quicker or something like that. I'm sure there's a pro and a con to both sides. Yeah. I mean, you think of like those little tiny micro teeth and, and little kind of micro burrs, like those can fold over um, that kind of thing. 
Now, again, it's like back to you, to, to what you're cutting. So once you get in, once you get that quarter off the mountain, you get into your kitchen, that's where you want like a really nice polished, super sharp polished knife. You start butchering, you're cutting steaks out of it. You're cutting, like you're actually getting off the bone. That's a great place to have a much, much less toothy edge. But when mm-hmm. you're in the field, you like, like you said, you want to be able to just stick that sucker in there and zip down the hide and those those hides are tough. I mean, shit, there's a reason why it covers their body, right? It's, it's like a, this little armor that they have. And, um, I mean, same thing with like fish and their scales. Like it, it always surprises me. I'm always going to push a little harder and then it pops in and then it zips on, zips along there pretty well. But, um, so that might maybe is a good, good way to show like when to have a, I guess in a, in an elk related concept, like when to have a toothier edge, basically like up on the mountain and then you get into your kitchen. Like that's a great time to have a nice smooth polish and it's going to cut those steaks nicely because you're in the protein, the meat of the, of the animal. Tim, we could uh, talk all day. (laughs) More (laughs) questions. We should probably wrap it up, get to work. Um, So it sounds like, what can you tell us about what's coming? Cause we did these knives, you know, these limited run with the XO stuff that we talked about and we're giving one away, which guys heard about in the intro of the podcast here. But it sounds like yeah. you mentioned June, maybe there's a couple new things coming that hunters may be interested in. What can you tell us at this point? Yeah. So the whole knife industry works around the, like the, the lunar calendar of blade show in June, uh, which is in Atlanta, Georgia. And it's like that first weekend in June. Um, and that kind of sets up our years. So that it's, it's like the shot show of the knife industry. Um, that's when you debut new product products and things like that. So we are planning on debuting, um, like opening up for orders and bringing down to the show a handful of these Yonis, and then this new knife that I haven't mentioned anywhere else, but here for the first time is the backpacker. Um, and that'll be a really cool one. Just in the, you know, if somebody likes a little bit wider blade, it'd be a great, great one for that. Um, so yeah, we're shooting for June that, that orders will be, uh, opening up. I'm not sure at this point, like what the lead time's looking like. We're going to, hopefully start filling orders as soon as we, as soon as we release it. So like throughout June, July, August, all that, um, trying to do that because like, as you guys know, what is it basically from like May to mid August guys are trying to get stuff in their pack. Right. Like that's kind of the, the buying season. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So that's what we're trying to do. It's like, Hey, let's, let's get it out. We were shooting for, well, we've originally shot for a bunch of different dates. But we were originally trying to shoot for the 15th of April because I wanted to get a bunch of, you know, maybe get someone to get a photo of, of one in a bear or in a turkey or something. But um, for, for the big, re- big release, the, the production version through us, it's going to be June. Um, but yeah, you guys still have some of those giveaways, which are pretty, pretty cool. And that build is like pretty slick, the black and the EXO logo look pretty cool. So and yeah. guys purchase the new backpacker like do they buy that through chris reeves do they have to find a dealer that ordered some up what's the best way to go there all the above yeah so our dealers will will place a lot of orders with us but you can always order direct we work we work both ways um we'll be bringing some down to blade show so that'll be kind of cool some of the first run stuff there but we always work direct with our customers but we also probably 95 percent of the knives that we make go out to our various dealers that we've been working with for for ages and we've got a great dealer network so really just keep your eyes open. Um, I mean, these, these last two years, uh, have been kind of crazy just with demand and, and, um, obviously the world's kind of changed a little bit, but, uh, uh, demand in the outdoor world, guns, backpacks, knives, 
whatever solar power systems like seems to be through the charts and production is only up uh at least industry-wide in the knife industry so it's it's weird it's like when you can see our knives and dealers people just jump on them and grab them so everyone keeps saying why are you always out of stock like i don't i'm not uh well i guess i am but we're making more than we ever have so i guess you're not keep your eyes open so um it's kind of a wild world out there right now quick question um if i'm able to ask what's the and yoni gonna look like is it gonna defer a little bit than the x01 yeah yeah so we're gonna do our our kind of classic uh stonewash finish on the blade um all of our folding knives have that um it's just it's just a classic finish from us real corrosion resistant just looks really good um and then we're gonna have two different handle options it'll be black canvas micarta and natural canvas micarta so we'll start with that um for both those knives um we're doing we're, we're actually making our own Kydex sheaths in-house, which has been quite an interesting endeavor. I got a lot of advice from, uh, from Gabe over at Ivory uh, Holsters. He's just like the nicest dude on planet Earth. Um, is, yeah. So, yeah, we're, we're actually, we were playing with like grays and greens and stuff, but I think we just settled on black uh, for now because Kydex material is starting to get really hard to get a hold of or something like that. So, yeah, that's what it's going to look like through us. But um, the, the super bl- cool black version with the black screws and the XO logo will be, be through you guys. And uh, yeah, it seems like there's some pretty good feedback on that. Yeah, awesome. Absolutely. Well, uh, obviously website, social media, all the usual places if guys want to kind of stay in touch with what you guys have or maybe see those launches, Tim. Yeah, so uh, via our Instagram um, and our website. So chrisreeve.com. <laughs> Perfect. Thanks for the time, man. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Well, that's a wrap on this one, guys. Don't forget to check out the link in the show description or just go to exomountgear.com forward slash knife giveaway. You can see that limited edition Chris Reeves and Yoni knife that you can win by leaving us your question. Again, all the details are that link in the show description. Also, if you guys haven't yet, hit that subscribe or follow button in your podcast app so that you receive future episodes automatically. And we'll talk to you soon.